service. Uh, hopefully you've learned a lot and we can go about our way. The children's ministry did a great job and uh, communicated everything that we needed to. Um, well, today I have the privilege of preaching to you two say what passages. A passage that shocks you for a moment before you're able to figure out what's going on. My, my friends and I will use this phrase with one another when we're surprised or astonished at what the other person is telling us and we just need it repeated. We need more information. Let me give you an example. If I were to say I was kayaking in the Wake Forest Reservoir and I put out a pool noodle beside me and I caught this fish on that pool noodle, my friends would say, what? You caught what? I need more information to know how this fish was caught by this guy, the way I caught it and where I caught it. That is a legitimate fish out of the Rape Forest Reservoir just up the street. I was fishing and kayaking with Carson Cobb, his son Grayson and Sam Bowman. So just ask them about it. They can confirm that I caught that fish. But let's, let's dig into our text this morning, and you'll see what I mean by a say what passage. Turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 7. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 24. It starts with, and from there he, speaking of Jesus, rose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and she found the child laying in bed and the demon gone. Say, what? My kind and compassionate and thoughtful Jesus uses a metaphor that refers to a woman as a dog? Say, what? So we need to unpack this passage to figure out what's going on. And to do this well, we need God's help. So let's start by praying to him and asking for him to help us. Pray with me. Father, help us to understand your son today. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts, granting us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. God Almighty, glorify your Son this day as your word shines a light upon him and his grace. Amen. So first things first, we need to get our bearings if we hope to understand such a surprising encounter with Jesus. And to help us get our bearings, I want us to take note of where we are in our study in the Gospel of Mark. You see, we're coming out of a teaching on what defiles a person. And we concluded last week that unclean is not defined by what goes in, but whether what comes out of an individual. And as we engaged the text last week, Peter's vision in Acts 10 with the great sheet descending three times from heaven 
should have been echoing in our ears. You see, in that passage, the voice of God declares to Peter, what God has made clean, do not call common. And with that, we remember the gospel going forth to the Gentiles, to Cornelius and all whom he had gathered in his household. And with this echoing, we remember that later at the Jerusalem council, Peter was proclaiming, he would say, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you, that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us. And he made no distinction between us and them. And listen to this, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Do you hear the echoes from Mark 7, 1 through 23 from last week in Peter's speech here? So we are in this section where Jesus is redefining what, better yet, whom are truly clean. And if we expand our context out just one more layer, we see that we are in the middle of what I'm going to call a bread sandwich. Because in Mark 6, the chapter that just precedes the one we're in today, Jesus feeds 5,000 with bread. And in the chapter to come, in chapter 8, Jesus feeds the 4,000 with bread. And what do we find here in Mark 7 in our passage today? More bread, crumbs. That is why I'm calling this a bread sandwich. Because Jesus uses the analogy of bread with the Syrophoenician woman. You see, Mark, the inspired biblical author, wants us to connect some dots. He's leaving us breadcrumbs as a trail, if you will. So much so that he inserts a particular, peculiar comment about bread in his account of Jesus walking on the water. You may remember this from two weeks ago when Carson Cobb preached the account of Jesus walking on the water. The disciples were having a hard time on the boat because of a strong wind. They see Jesus, but they think that he is a ghost. And then read with me the end of the passage as we begin to connect some of these dots. Mark chapter six in verse 51. And he, Jesus, got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves but their hearts were hardened. Say, what? Why does Mark bring up a comment about bread here? This is the account of Jesus walking on the water, by the way. If there were something closer to the current situation, maybe you would expect Mark would make a comment something like, for they did not understand about the time he rebuked the winds by saying, be still. But that is not what Mark chooses to write here. Instead, Mark notes that their amazement was connected to their lack of understanding about bread. Now, if we continue to follow this trail of breadcrumbs that Mark is leaving, let's look ahead at chapter 8, where Jesus is warning his disciples against the leaven of the Pharisees and other leaders so that they would not be negatively influenced by them. And we read this in Mark 8, verse 16. And they began discussing with one another, 
the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, says to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Say what? We're back to this bread thing again in chapter 8. What's up with Mark's obsession with bread? Did he take over for Jared as the subway spokesperson or something? All right, let me begin to put a bow on this thing. Here's what's going on and here's how it will help us understand our two passages today. Mark, the inspired gospel author, the evangelist, wants to help us see that the gospel is going forth to the Gentiles. As we will see, he is comparing and contrasting the way that the disciples and the religious leaders are responding to Jesus and the way that the Gentiles are going to respond to Jesus. You see, God's people, the Jews, are not getting it. They do not yet understand. So Jesus moves into Gentile territory and begins to reveal himself to them. Jesus, as we will find, is not only Israel's savior, but the savior of the world. Let me show you in today's passage. Jump back into Mark 7. We're looking in verse 14 that Jesus has left Gennesaret, and has entered the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now I won't bore you this morning with a geography lesson, but we must note that Jesus has left Jewish territory and has entered Gentile territory. And not just any Gentile territory. Listen to how this region has been described in other scriptures. It's been described as a terror in Ezekiel 26. It's been described as a center for idolatry in 1 Kings 16. This is the home of the infamous Jezebel in 1 Kings. And you can see how this place was viewed in Jesus' own words from Matthew chapter 11, where he says, Woe to you, Chorazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. One author wrote that Tyre and Sidon were code names for pagan land. We might say Sin City or Las Vegas in our country. And if we expand this on a global scale, better yet, we might describe it as North Korea or Afghanistan. Because this was not just Gentile territory. It was the place that signified everything contrary to Israel's faith. So this is where we find Jesus this morning. He is in the epicenter of pagan land. And while Jesus is in pagan land, he desires to remain hidden. He wants to keep his whereabouts secret. Now, I don't know if you've picked up on this so far in the study of Mark, but Jesus would have been terrible at the children's game hide and go seek. Every time he tries to hide, people find him immediately. And this case is no different. His reputation has preceded him. And a desperate lady finds him in his hideout. And this woman, she is desperate because she is a mother. 
and her daughter is demon-possessed. Somehow the stories of Jesus' ability to cast out demons has reached her and she seizes her opportunity to find healing for her little girl. Can you imagine what this mother must be going through? What she must be feeling? Every parent can relate to why she would track Jesus down and implore him to help. You see, she finally has reason to hope. Now Mark tells us more about this woman than just that she was a mother. She's described as a Gentile and a Syrophoenician. Matthew has a parallel account of this story and he adds that she was a Canaanite. And all of these descriptors are designed to clue us in on the fact that she's a Gentile, that she is not an Israelite. One might say she is far from God, but she's not really that far from God at all because Jesus is standing right before her. And this desperate Gentile woman is now bowed at this Jew's feet and is begging him to have mercy on her and to cast this demon from her little girl. And listen to how Jesus responds to her. Let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Say what? Is this what you would expect Jesus, your compassionate Savior, to say to this needy mother's request for healing and mercy? Jesus response is shocking to us it it catches us off guard why would Jesus respond to her passionate plea for help this way well there are at least three ways to explain Jesus's response and I think all three of these elements are involved at some level first Jesus was prioritizing his mission to the Jews You see, in Matthew's parallel account, Jesus says, I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Paul would put it this way in his letter to the Romans. He would say, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, it is important to note that neither Jesus nor Paul were excluding the Gentiles from salvation. They are simply highlighting the order of God's salvation in redemptive history. You see, the dogs still eat. It's simply that the children eat first. It's a passage in Genesis chapter 12 that I think will help us today. Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 2, where the promise to Abraham is going forth from the Lord. And he says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, God's plan for redemptive history, his plan with Israel was not for them to keep the blessing. It was like he's pouring his blessing in and it is to fill them so it cascades down 
and reaches all the peoples of the earth. That was God's design. So this is one of the things Jesus is doing here. He is describing his prioritization of his mission to the Jews that was spilled over into all the peoples of the world. Secondly, Jesus was given an object lesson. He's given an object lesson. Some commentators make a big deal of the particular Greek word that's used to describe the dog here. They'll say, this is the Greek word used to describe a household dog, not a mangy outside dog. Well, I don't know about you, but if I'm having a conversation with my wife where I refer to her as a dog and then she gets really upset and angry at me, I say, no, no, honey, you don't get it. I'm calling you a household dog. Aren't you happy now? No, she is still mad. I am still in the dog house. So I'm not convinced that that is what's going on here, but I am convinced of the way Jesus teaches. Jesus regularly uses his surroundings to teach a lesson. And so he's in a house. Very likely there is a table where meals are consumed in front of him. And he is saying, you don't feed the children, the dogs, the children's food. You feed the children first. It was an analogy, an illustration that would have been visual to her in the moment. And thirdly, Jesus was drawing out this woman's faith. Jesus says exactly what needed to be said to elicit a further response of faith from her. And that is exactly what we witness happening in our passage. This lady does not seem offended in the least little bit. Instead, she embraces Jesus' analogy and she responds, yes, Lord, yes. Even the dogs under the table eat the crumbs, the children's crumbs. Her humility and her faith are on full display in her quick-witted reply. She gladly assumes the low place of the household pet, knowing that if she does, she will be fed. Martin Luther wrote about the Syrophoenician lady this way. He says, she took Christ at his words. He then treated her not as a dog, but as a child of Israel. You see, this lady understood something about Jesus because she calls him Lord. One pastor noted that it is the only vocative use of the term Lord in the gospel of Mark. She's basically saying, oh Lord, as a personal expression of her own faith. In Matthew's account, she calls him Lord three times. And not only does she call him Lord three times, she also refers to him with the messianic title, son of David. You see, she understands something that the disciples have yet to understand. Remember, the disciples had not understood about the bread, but this Gentile woman does one statement about bread and she knows who Jesus is. She knows that God's grace and mercy were sufficient for the children and for the dogs. She knew that when God feeds people, they are satisfied and buckets and baskets of crumbs are left over. She recognizes Jesus as the Savior and knew that his salvation was not for the Jews, but for all peoples. This is why in Matthew's account, Jesus answers her oh woman 
Oh, woman, great is your faith. Jesus' test, his drawing out resulted in exactly what he thought it would. Great faith. This woman had initially approached Jesus in faith and her humble, determined commitment to Jesus as her only hope results in great faith. What initially appears as an insult reveals Jesus' great care and compassion to draw out this woman's faith. For he knows that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And this woman's faith is not left disappointed at all. Jesus, her source of supreme hope, encourages her by letting her know that the demon has been exercised. He doesn't even need to go. The demon is gone and the healing is confirmed upon the mother's return home. Church, isn't Jesus good? He knows that faith is our greatest need and he does whatever it takes, even if it seems odd to others to draw it out of us. Now, let's take a look at our second say what passage. Mark chapter seven, picking up in verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue and looked up to heaven and sighed and said to him, Epapha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Say, what? Jesus spits on his hand and touches another man's tug to heal him? That doesn't pass the COVID social distancing test. Say, what? Well, let's dig into the text again and find out what's going on here. What's going on in Mark? Well, the first thing we'll notice is Jesus is on the move again, but he's still in Gentile territory. If you'll remember, the Decapolis is where the man from whom Jesus had set free from legion back in Mark chapter five. And he had went and proclaimed all that Jesus had done for him. So obviously this man had done a good job of proclaiming because Jesus now has brought this deaf, speech-impaired friend to Jesus. And they're begging him to lay hands on him in hopes that he would be healed. Again, we see that Jesus' reputation precedes him. And then we get to this say what section. Jesus pulls him away from the crowds for a private one-on-one -on -one encounter and he pokes his fingers in his ears. He spits on his hand and then rubs it on the man's tongue with his spit-soaked fingers. Now this is a pretty peculiar way for Jesus to heal. Remember, Jesus has healed before simply by saying a word. 
why would he choose such an odd way here? Well, first of all, Jesus is honoring the request of the man's friends. Notice in verse 32, they had specifically asked Jesus to lay hands on him. Secondly, Jesus' physical contact is an expression of compassion. He is tangibly and relationally entering this man's world. And then thirdly, as one commentator noted, spittle of certain persons was considered by the Jews to have healing power, especially when it was accompanied by conversation. And since this was the means by which Jesus chose to use, it would have instilled confidence in this man that Jesus was going to heal him. Even Jesus' sigh while gazing into heaven displays his compassion. This alongside his authority over the powers of evil and sin. And then we see the effect of Jesus' authority as the man's tongue is released. The word used here is that of prison chains being broken. You see, sin's effect on this broken world had enslaved the man's tongue. But Jesus' touch breaks that bondage. The kingdom of heaven is truly at hand. And Jesus instructs these folks to tell no one. But this man, along with his friends, used his newly restored speech to speak of Jesus. I want you to notice something in the response of the people that end our passage this morning. They are astonished. And in their astonishment, they make two comments that Mark notes that echoes something about the character and nature of Jesus and his mission. The first thing I want you to notice is this comment they make, he has done all things well. Does this sound familiar? Do you hear the echoes of Genesis 1 where we hear, and God saw everything that he made and behold, it was very good. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uses the same exact word in Genesis as we find in our passage in Mark 7. So this statement and its allusion to Genesis 1 indicate that Jesus, who is God, does everything well. And if that allusion were not enough, look at the last comment the people make. They say, he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Listen to Isaiah's prophecy from chapter 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. You see, this prophecy of the restoration of all creation has begun in and through the person of Jesus. To quote Jesus from the beginning of the gospel of Mark in Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So North Wake, I began today by asking the question, say what? And we followed the breadcrumbs that Mark left us. 
But Mark is using those breadcrumbs to ask a better question. He's asking, say who? Say who? Who do you say Jesus is? You see, these two say what passages are ultimately designed to force us to answer the question, say who? Mark is showing that Jesus' mission is for everyone, for the Jew and for the Gentile, for the whole world. Because Jesus is the one and only Savior of the world. And he does all things well. In the very next chapter, chapter 8 of Mark, Jesus will ask this question of Peter. He will ask Peter, but who do you say I am, Peter? Who do you say I am? So church gathered here today, those watching live stream at home, who do you say Jesus is? If you answer that question with, he is my savior, he is my God, he is my Lord, then your response to today's message is to first, as you are reminded of who Jesus is, to worship him in your full being secondly it is designed and allowed by God to these these sufferings and these these difficulties that come into our life to allow those by to be used by God to increase your faith in and through difficult circumstances you lean into him by humbly depending on him and he will not let you down So we lean into him. And lastly, we need to be on mission with him. If Jesus took the gospel to the world, if he entered pagan land to take the gospel, then we get to as well. Just like we heard the young lady in her testimony earlier, these harvest teams going out. It is not just harvest teams going out. It is every follower of Christ going on mission with him because as Christ followers, we follow him. And since Christ's mission was to bring salvation to the world, we follow on that same exact mission. So those are the three responses to those of us who are followers of Christ. If you are not a follower of Christ, if he is not currently your savior, then Jesus has given you the same opportunity that he gave the Syrophoenician woman and this deaf speech impaired man. He gives you the opportunity to come to him in faith, to approach him in humility, to bow down before him and know that you will find healing for your souls. So your response would be to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Pray with me. Father, through an odd, unique passage of scripture, you have displayed your son Jesus to be beautiful once again to be the one and only savior of this world, to be so caring and so compassionate that he will not rest until he has drawn out our faith. So Lord, for each and every one of us, would you use this passage to draw out our faith and will we respond to you in faith, we pray in Christ's name, amen.